You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Today, I am joined by Katie Kasparow. Katie is an OT clinician at an outpatient pediatric practice and is currently studying implementation science at University of Pittsburgh, where she works as a research assistant. In addition to these occupations, Katie is the architect behind the hot evidence interventions infographics that are based on the critically appraised topics. These are available on AOTA.org, and you may have seen them shared on AOTA social media accounts. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show, Katie. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. We're happy to have you. You also host the OT Digest podcast and run a business, OT Graphically. Um, What is the motivation behind your involvement with all of these projects? Yeah, uh, from my personal experience as an OT, as well as learning about, you know, the gap between how long it takes to put research into practice I really wanted to find a solution to that problem. Um, I also, as a research assistant, saw how much effort it took to actually create a published article um, and how that article was not always seen. Um, And there were barriers to being able to use that information in practice. So my hope through this company is to support closing the gap um, and more quickly turn um, putting research into practice around by supporting researchers being able to share their work and then support OT practitioners um, and clients engaging with the updated evidence too. Our, our listeners have heard me talk about this gap a lot, um, but it, it's something that I'm really interested um, in as well and uh, how we can reduce that, that gap, make research more consumable um, and more applicable. Um, and I think it's really interesting how you're attacking that from so many different avenues with a podcast, with your website, with these graphics. Um, Can you share with us why you feel evidence-based practice and and research dissemination um, and implementation are so important? I think we have a lot of information about what works um, and it's just not necessarily. Now the next step is it's kind of like a new issue, right? Because we have all this evidence. So um, how do we take that information and apply it is not like a linear process. It can be really complex. So I think that, um, and, and for our clients' sake too, um, to improve their outcomes. So we're not kind of, you know, throwing something out, hoping for the best. We really feel confident that what we're doing works. Um, we can use that information and kind of skip some of these steps so that our clients are getting better quicker. And we are able to really, um, advocate for our profession as uh, as OTs to be able to support just improving the care. I love that. I love that. And I love how your your interest in um, implementation science and you're studying that now uh, has really become a, an occupation, as I like to call it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, Katie, you have a, a very unique combination of experience and, and expertise with clinical practice and with research, uh, which I can imagine helps you create such useful resources. Um, and I'd really like to dive into your work on hot evidence and highlight a few of the infographics uh, you've helped to create with that initiative, but want to first encourage everyone to look up the whole collection of these infographics um, on AOTA.org. 
Can you go ahead and provide a quick background about hot evidence, maybe what these resources are and its purpose? Yeah, it has a really catchy name. So, but if you haven't seen it, um, so these are um, basically the graphical representation of previous cats or critically appraised topics that have been done before. Um, and it's just a way to provide a quick snapshot of what those say and how to be able to consume it, you know, at a lunch break or before a session to be able to get up to date really quickly. And then if you are interested to dive deeper into the articles that you're looking at um, for the specific interventions you're curious about. Awesome. What, what, what motivated you to be a part of, of Hot Evidence? I was motivated to support this project. I just really think it solved a lot of the challenges I saw as a clinician. Um, I would try to review, you know, updated evidence on, you know, my lunch breaker really quickly. Um, And it just takes a lot of focus for me. I'm more of a visual person. So like reading through a lot of pages took me extra time that I didn't have as a clinician. Um, And I believe it also um, helps support access to important information we need to do our jobs well. Um, and help to advocate for the individuals we work with. And really, um, some of these areas are really, um, they're unique. They're addressed, um, addressing occupations that maybe we haven't addressed as OTs, which is really fun and really uh, exciting to be a part of. Uh, absolutely. Um, I love how it's that quick visual snapshot that a, a clinician can look at, you know, when they don't have a lot of time or, or are on the go. Uh, how specifically would you say these hot evidence graphics help practitioners um, consume or, and, and apply evidence to what they do? Yeah, I think um, it's really nice how it's kind of across social media popping up. It kind of reminds you to kind of say, oh, yeah, I do need to kind of reevaluate that and look up what's current because what was current last year might be different than this year. Um, and then just see if um, those areas fit into the maybe some things you're curious about um, or if there's an opportunity um, for us to say, hey, I'm not doing any of those interventions, but I'm seeing what I'm doing is working. Maybe I need to connect with the researcher to share with them what's going on in the clinic and really open up those lines of communication. So it's kind of it's telling us what's out there, but it's also saying maybe what's not supported and what we can do to fill in those gaps as well, too. And I love that. And it, it, it sounds like these can really be used as uh, like a spark plug to hopefully spark some um, creative problem solving or, or increased clinical reasoning when, when deciding on an intervention and, and hopefully creating a community to share more research-based um, practice. Absolutely. It's the discussion that really is what helps implementation the most. It's having um, those conversations. Uh, this is kind of a, a jumping off point, uh, but really having everybody engaged in it is really going to make the difference. I love that. I love that. I wish we could just flood social media with all the good evidence to to really get all these conversations started. Mm-hmm. Um, how does AOTA arrive at the recommendations shared in the graphics? Yeah, so they go through a systematic review process. Uh, they actually did a lot of these a while ago, um, and they're called CATS, uh, Critically Appraised Topics. So Uh, CAT is a way to evaluate how strong the evidence is by answering kind of like a checklist of questions uh, related to the study design or trying to see if there's any biases biases in the articles. Um, 
And I think there are some that are going to be, I think they're, sorry, (laughs) I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but they are kind of changing it to being from cats to a research brief. So you might see that more frequently that that phrasing used um, in the future. So both of those are, are pretty interchangeable though. Awesome. I, I feel especially we get a little uh, sneak preview of, uh, of the name change there, the research <laughs> briefs. Um, and uh, I've spoken with some uh, people who, who do systematic reviews um, and, and practice guidelines and other things with AOTA. And it's such an extensive process, but they have teams who are going through hundreds and hundreds of articles and, um, you know, really taking out the, the main interventions and evidence um, that's supported. And, but it's, it's so much work that's done behind the scenes. And even though people are seeing just this little graphic, it's based on so much evidence. Am I correct? Yeah. I always say the smaller you make something, the harder it is. And so I think behind each of those little icons are so much information. Um, and it's actually, you know, it really doesn't always tell the whole story. So I, I always encourage going back to the articles and reading, you know, their methods section to see what the intervention actually looked like too. So it is a, but it is a very labor intensive process for sure. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and, and go over or dive into a little more detail on, on some of these um, hot evidence graphics. Uh, if we can start with, there's one for handwriting for children and youth, five to 21 years. Um, can we discuss this one? And it's kind of set up where you're looking at the graphic and the first section is, why does this matter? Um, so that's the question I'll pose to you, Katie. Why does um, handwriting for children and youth, age five to 21, matter? Yeah, I mean, handwriting is just such a foundational skill for a student. Uh, It's essential to participate in in a classroom. Um, And there's been a lot of evidence about um, the effectiveness of activity and occupation-based interventions for legible handwriting. Um, And there's a lot of skills that are involved in handwriting. It's a, it's a, I always describe it to the families I work at is it's a lot of systems that have to work together. So it's definitely um, something that is, uh, can be a facilitator or a barrier to participation in school. Absolutely. And so many implications for that, that age group. Um, and also so many different uh, uh, ways to approach intervention. Uh, what are the evidence-based interventions included on the graphic um, for this population? Yeah, so there is um, using activity-based practice, so like actually practicing writing the letters, um, having the students evaluate themselves to so say, you know, are my lines or is my are my letters on the line? Are they spaced out? Really, that self-evaluation process is really helpful. Um, using a curriculum that includes sensory motor activities, which is awesome. I think that has been the missing piece for a while, personally. Um, but yeah, using like a structured curriculum um, that can incorporate some of the movement and sensory motor strategies and then collaborating and co-teaching with teachers. Um, and I believe, you know, what this one in addition says um, when you look at the article is to maybe not reteach a different curriculum, but really use evaluate what they're already using and see if it's working well before you're kind of 
changing it or trying a new thing, um, which personally I have um, done that and been, you know, kind of backtracked and said, ooh, maybe that wasn't the best decision. So it's, it's interesting to see it in the evidence too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And would a, an example of those curriculums be something like handwriting without tears or, or a program like that? Yes, exactly. Okay, perfect. Um, Katie, what would you recommend a practitioner do if they want to learn more about one of the interventions listed in that graphic or any of the graphics, really? Yeah, well, first I would say just go to the the cat. All of them are linked at the bottom. You should be able to click it and it'll send you right to the to the web page. Um, and then also, um, I would encourage you to reflect and evaluate what you currently do. Um, and then try, you know, try a new strategy or seek out additional trainings or information if you feel like it's something totally new to you. Um, and it can really streamline your, you know, continuing education process, which is kind of nice, too. I love that. I love that piece of how these can be used as a quick, you know, reflection, a quick check-in um, that practitioners can use to kind of assess how they're doing using evidence. Um, and if there's, you know, something that that can help them, you know, add to their toolbox or uh, get out of a, a rut if they feel like they're doing the same thing. Um, I really love that perspective. Uh, but Katie, what about if the graphic says not to do a certain um, practice, such as uh, isolated training on components of handwriting in this example, especially if it's something that maybe a practitioner is doing commonly and then seeing that they shouldn't do it in one of these graphics. Yeah, that's always a challenge, right? If it's something you're really comfortable with and it's it's kind of like you have to put on the brakes for a second. And yeah, I guess it's kind of the same answer, you know, reflect and evaluate and see if you do try something different or you do, inc- this one's kind of nice because it's like incorporating more things together. So just if you do incorporate that curriculum, um, you know, track your data. Is it improving the, the child? Is it child's handwriting? Is it le- the, specifically their handwriting legibility is what this is um, targeting? So they may improve those isolated skills, but if it's not translating the legibility, then you can really see, oh, you know, maybe I need to seek out that curriculum if I'm only doing isolated tasks. Is that helpful? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, sometimes it can be easy to kind of see results on on like a splinter skill. Um, but if you take a step back and are looking at overall performance of, you know, an occupation or something more meaningful, um, it's may not actually be having an effect. So I think that's a very helpful suggestion. Thank you, Katie. So when I'm looking over the graphics, I think they're, they're sleek, they're easy to follow. Uh, they summarize uh, the information and the research well. Um, what do you hope, besides what we've already covered, um, practitioners um, or students do after accessing the infographic to incorporate information shared to their practice? Well, personally, uh, this is what I do, and I feel like it's been helpful for me. Uh, but think, I think about a particular client in mind that I might be stuck with, basically, you know, specific to handwriting or whatever the, the graphic is on, um, and really think about what I currently use, because sometimes we don't take a second to even just describe what we're currently doing, and then think about, does it fit in any of these categories? Um, and if it doesn't, is there something we want to try? Could there could there be, or if we're, we're curious, 
you know, maybe one of those doesn't look like it should be there, really going back to the references and and learning more about them and seeing what specifically it looks like for you to do that activity. Um, Like I said before, going to the method section of the article that is referenced and seeing the step-by-step guide can really help us apply exactly what the research shows is working. Um, But I think having that lens of a particular client is really helpful because that will help us be able to visualize it and then in turn apply it um, a little bit easier with a few less barriers kind of right off the bat. I love that. I love that. Really uh, approach these um, graphics with with a specific client in, in mind. I think that can be um, really impactful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to try that out, Katie. I'll let you know how it goes for me. Yeah, it's been helpful for me. So, Awesome. Um, let's go over one more hot topic. Um, just another reminder, the whole collection of hot topics um, or hot evidence topics is available on AOTA.org. So reminder for the listeners to check that out. Um, but the next one I wanted to talk about is interventions to promote sleep for adults with chronic conditions infographic. Um, And same question as before, Katie, why does this topic matter? Yeah, sleep is super important. And I think this is kind of what I was talking about before, maybe one that isn't always thought of or addressed, thought of as an occupation. Um, So I think the sleep is so important because it can really have a negative impact on our um, future long-term health. Um, Or if someone already has a chronic condition, it can exacerbate it or increase some of these conditions. Um, And so I think that knowing the impacts of having a shorter shorter sleep duration is really important to be able to educate um, and also kind of reflect on our own sleep too. I think sometimes as OTs, we are hard workers and sometimes maybe don't get the best sleep. So this can be a good one for everyone, I think. What are the evidence-based interventions included in the graphic to improve rest and sleep? So, yeah, there's a few. Um, There's self-care education on sleep hygiene. So how well their sleep routines look, things like that. Uh, What are you eating? Are you eating right before bed? Are you drinking caffeine at 6 p.m.? And then physical activity, you know, how much activity you're getting during the day. Are you tiring yourself out enough so that by the time you do go to bed, you feel tired? Um, And then also mind-body wellness. So being able to have that kind of mindfulness and feeling like you have that mind-body connection can really help the sleep process. And then lastly, cognitive behavioral therapy. So things like relaxation, sleep hygiene again, and then managing sleep loss. A lot of times um, when we wake up, we have these uh, thoughts that are maybe not great about sleep and we try to, you know, those can get exacerbated over time. So CBT is a great thing for this as well. I love that. I love that. Thank you. I, I would agree. I don't think sleep has received quite as much attention as, as a, a area that occupational therapy can can provide a lot of assistance in, in, in improving, but there's really so much that can be done. Um, and it, it's such an important part of life that, that it makes a lot of sense. Do you, do you uh, work with any of those specific sleep interventions or have you used any in, in your practice? I have. I also have done, um, I'm currently involved in a research study about sleep and sensory processing. 
And so I have uh, been able to learn just being involved in a research project, you know, even more about kind of what's coming up too. So uh, especially cognitive behavioral therapy has been something that um, has been something I've learned about and gotten more interested and feel more com- felt more comfortable using too. Does a practitioner need to have additional training or, or certification to start using cognitive behavioral therapy and in, in what they do? No, I mean, I remember learning it in school um, a few different times. I think we have the tools needed uh, to be able to address cognitive behavioral therapy. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, well, thank you so much, Katie. Uh, I just want to ask you a couple more questions, um, a little bit more about using these infographics. Um, you've already given us some some great recommendations to use these, you know, as as check-ins to come up with new ideas, um, to reflect on on your own performance as a as a clinician, um, and then also to to make a plan afterwards. Are there any other ways you'd recommend practitioners, students, um, and educators use these resources? Yeah, I think more logistically, um, I could see these being used, having them at your desk or taped to, you know, a bulletin board, um, having them saved on like a shared folder or something that you have in your in your work or in your school. Um, it definitely could be helpful for students as kind of like a conversation point um, or even just to be able to help them with assignments and getting them thinking about what's, um, what's evidence-based. Um, and then Another tip would be to have the graphics bookmarked on your you know, search engine and be able to kind of quickly reference them if you need to um, versus trying to find the link when you're uh, in, in the middle of your day. Yes, I love that. A good a good evidence bookmark on the on the laptop or, or your desktop at work can, can be very helpful. All right, Katie, I just have one more question for you. This is the golden nugget segment of the show. And I am going to ask you to share a golden nugget with us, Katie. If you could tell practitioners to do one thing, what would it be? Ooh, that's hard and stressful. Let me see if I can think. Um, Well, I think I've said this a few times, but I really do think reflecting and thinking through some of these interventions and envisioning using it with a particular client um, can help you identify any barriers that you might face kind of before uh, because I think what can happen is um, we'll hit a barrier really quickly and then we'll kind of not think about using evidence again. So I think being able to do that process is really helpful um, and then tracking it and seeing if there is any forward movement compared to what you were previously doing. I think that was about seven nuggets. Sorry, but I think I got them all in. <laughs> Absolutely. We will take any and all nuggets um, as long as they're golden. And, and I think those were golden. So thank you so much for sharing, Katie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is, this is just a bonus question. Um, you're currently studying implementation science. You have all this experience, um, running your company, doing all these things to help encourage increased dissemination and implementation of research. Um, how would you recommend, you know, a student or, or clinician or an educator, Um, who wants to learn more about dissemination and implementation or uh, increase their role in in those efforts, what would you recommend they could do? 
Well, there's a lot of great organizations that are um, like professional organizations that are focused on that. And it's kind of nice because it's not just related to OT, it's kind of healthcare in general. Um, So I've learned a lot from um, all sorts of specific organizations. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but um, they have a bunch of acronyms. So um, yeah, just getting it, looking out for like dissemination and implementation or knowledge translation. Those words um, often have associations um, connected with them. Um, I do think that also, you know, going back to school to learn about this, because uh, it is such a new field, there are more schools and um, universities kind of popping up with this uh, specific training in mind. Um, but I think just the conversations between clinicians and researchers to reach out to researchers you're curious about, or if you read an article and it was really helpful for you to tell someone about that, I think that really in of itself can really break down this 17-year gap and really make um, us all collaborate and work together so that we can help each other out because we have such valuable information as clinicians and researchers have such valuable information for us. We just aren't always hearing each other or we're um, putting it in the wrong places. So I think um, increasing that communication can be so helpful. I love that. I love that. That's such great advice. Um, you know, the gap the gap is there, but things are becoming so much more accessible and, and, and consumable now nowadays. And I know it can be overwhelming when someone wants to to apply more evidence or become more um, enthralled in the evidence because there's so much out there. Um, but just starting with something small um, and that that might be more quick, like um, these graphics or, you know, a, a podcast, something like that, that um, is is quicker to look at can can be a great jumping off point. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Katie, thank you so much for your time um, and for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.